This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. There were a few people that were disappointed after my last uh, vaccine uh, dilemma part two. I know, very creative names I have for these. And that was, Eric, you didn't share your position on it. And I would get back and say, I did share my position. Why, why did you not hear my position? I, I just shared it. It's like, that's not a position. It is a position. I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I have to have a position. I have a position. So I'll go through that again today, even though I'm, I'm, gonna, under, I'm gonna try and get you into my skin of why I'm handling it the way I'm handling it. And whether or not you appreciate my skin, I don't know. But at least you'll understand why I'm navigating it the way I am. So, hey, pastor, can't you just tell me what to do? I cannot do that. That would violate my conscience to dictate to yours how you should live and how you should behave. I can give you principles, I can give you truths, but then I need to turn you over to the Spirit of God and say, you go to him. You study this. You have to be responsible for your own soul. Someone else cannot be. Have you ever had it where someone says something like this? Uh, hey, if I ever like say something that I shouldn't, could you, you know, make sure to correct me? And it's like, that's a big weight to stick on someone else. It's like, if I ever do something dumb, make sure you tell me. And okay, well, partly that's, that's a part truth that I, I am responsible for my brother to make sure that I'm, I'm watching over him in, in a certain way. But that turkey is responsible for his own soul too. And he needs to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to listen and to heed. And I can't take the burden of someone else's conscience upon myself. That is a very, very unhealthy way to live. So this is an illustration we've given at Ellerslie quite a few times over the years, but I'm going to give it more as a starter package to get you thinking a certain way. And we call it Jojo and the Shoes. The question, what is love in this situation? So uh, David Wilkerson is in the streets of New York, and there is this gang member who is on a park bench, and that was basically his home. And uh, I want to say he was a leader of one of the gangs, too. And his name was Jojo, and he's a tough cookie. And uh, David Wilkerson has such a heart for these tough cookies, uh, for these gang uh, leaders and gang members in New York City. And I want to say this is back in the 50s. Is that correct, when David Wilkerson was doing this? So he comes up to Jojo, and he really has a heart to reach Jojo. And... Uh, you know, he, David Wilkerson's trying to engage him, and he's like, look, preacher, you and I are different. Look, I've never had a new pair of shoes in my entire life. Look at your shoes. And he had these really fancy, polished shoes on, because, you know, he, he's a pastor. It's just part of the culture. You have nice shoes because it shows high character, shows respect to other people, and you polish them. I mean, it's a lot of work to care for those shoes, right? And so David Wilkerson's walking around in his shoes, and he recognizes in that moment that his shoes are standing between him and this man's soul. So what does he do? He takes off the shoes and says, well, you're talking so much about my shoes, they're yours. And Jojo didn't quite know how to respond to that. And so he's like, oh, I'm not taking your shoes. You're taking my shoes. You're complaining about my shoes, complaining about not ever having new shoes. You have a pair of shoes. And I'm going to give you the end result. Jojo is going to be saved. 
okay? And the avenue of entry is David Wilkerson removing the blockage that was standing between him and his audience. Now, imagine we as the church, we hear that story, and so now some of you start walking around with no shoes on. And you're like, I really believe, I have a deep conviction that you're not supposed to wear shoes because that's how we reach people with the gospel. And, you know, David Wilkerson removed his shoes and that actually was a secret avenue of entry into JoJo's heart. And, well, you have a point there that is true, but it's not totally true. And then there could be another side, which is like, God gave us liberty to wear shoes. And so you have these two sides, and one's Apollos and one's Paul, you know, and so could you imagine if, if we ask Paul, uh, Paul, is it ever appropriate to remove your shoes if that was a barrier between you and reaching your lost audience? Absolutely. In fact, I wrote a book about it. You should read 1 Corinthians, and, and you can learn more about that, right? So Paul, and they were like, see, Paul supports the idea of, of removing our shoes. And then Paul comes to town, not knowing anything about the argument, and he is baited into the question. Is it against God's law to wear shoes? And then Apollos said, no, there is nothing. We have liberty in Christ. We can wear shoes. And then everyone's like, see? And then so we have those that are with Paul and those that are with Apollos, and the whole ridiculous thing is built of the devil. You see, what we have is a truth, and that is to reach Jojo, you should be willing to do whatever love is in that situation. However, we extrapolate from that and turn it into law, and we're very good at it, and then our conscience is burdened by someone else's law, and as a result, we're in the midst of this battle of Paul and Apollos over the issue of shoe wearing, and we shouldn't be, okay? And so Paul is going to address that, and I'm just laying a foundation here. This is a tension point for us. Because there is a point in time when you should remove your shoes. And now you shouldn't come to the opposite conclusion. It's always good to keep your shoes on. Because did you hear Eric talk about it? He said that's all from the devil, this whole shoe removing business. No, it's not. The part that divides us is. The part that tries to create a faction over it is. However, if your shoes are standing in the way of you reaching JoJo, you remove those crazy shoes. Because love should be the triumphing agent in that situation. A unique challenge facing the church. This is going to be sort of a review. If you haven't listened to the first uh, episode in the series, I highly recommend it. It's more dealing with fear and how fear has played a role in this issue. But a unique challenge facing the church, fear, preference, or conviction. So that sort of summarizes the second message, is distinguishing between these three, fear, preference, and conviction. Because a lot of us are jumbling the three together into a a weird stew-like mixture. It's a little bit of fear mixed with a lot of preference, and we try and justify it that we have conviction on it. Some of us have genuine conviction, but we also are mixing in fear and a bit of preference. And as a result, what we need to do is draw the lines and very clearly see where we stand. It would be really helpful if we knew that. So the Bible's clear in regards to all three of these. If fear is your motivation, what's the answer to that? Nope, Mm mm-mm. Fear shouldn't even be a part of your your spiritual life, nor your decision makings. So as a result, if fear is your guide, whether it's fear of the vaccine and what it could do to you, or fear of not getting the vaccine and getting this thing called COVID, okay? Fear is a motivator for many people in the world, and it should not be a motivator for Christians. So if that's your motivator, eh, already you should know what to do. The Bible is very clear on it. Preference, if you just have a preference, 
We all have preferences, but preferences have a very clear commission in Scripture too, and that is submit one unto the other, okay? Don't try and press your own agenda, but heed others. Everyone becomes a servant of everyone else. If it's just a preference, hey, this isn't an issue of conscience or conviction. This is an issue of preference. Like, would you rather have marmalade or strawberry jam? And then you can't take that and turn it into a law. It's like, marmalade is of the devil and strawberry jam is from heaven, okay? And put it upon someone else's conscience when they eat uh, marmalade or they bring marmalade into the kitchen going, I can't believe you have that stuff. That's disgusting, okay? That's an improper use of preference. Conviction is a very real thing in the Christian life and in Christian history. And when we have an issue of conviction... That's different than preference, and it's different than fear. And it's basically this, obey God above men. Because the the principle of conviction is obedience. We'll go into this. But you're always obeying. However, the goal is first to obey God. If we're ever asked to disobey God, we can't do that because we obey God no matter what. Our goal is to obey, and conviction is an issue of obedience. So the approaching storm, this is again a summary of last week. Pastor number one said to be pro-life is to be pro-vaccine. And that's a leading pastor in Canada, very respectable, godly man that I admire. And we have pastor two, again, a very respectable, godly man that I admire. To be pro-life is to be anti-vaccine. Okay, guys, we have some issues here. Because those two don't work well together, those worldviews. And yet that's what we are inheriting. Now we are stuck in this situation. In America, we're usually the last to get blindsided with things, right? And so we're, we're sort of the, the last line. Everyone else is getting hit around the world and they're coming down with strong mandates and we're just sort of waiting. Uh, and yet it would be very good if we processed through this to a point where we understood how the inner man is to work and how we are to respond to God, how we're to respond to government. All of these things are very, very significant for us. So my position on the matter, which obviously was very dissatisfying to people uh, after my last message on this, but here it is. I'll give it again because I thought I was very clear. I am not pro-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm pro-body of Christ. And people are like, you're playing a game with us, Eric. That doesn't answer anything. It answers everything. I am willing to do what it takes to reach JoJo. I'm willing to do what it takes to stand with the body of Christ and to help you. What is that? That's what I'm trying to discern. How can I serve the body of Christ? My end game is bigger than just my family in this. I'm interested in us as a family standing strong together. So the matter of religious moral exemptions. So there is something, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the vaccine, I know that that would be quite the the statement to say, I've never heard of, what what, what are you talking about? Uh, So there is this thing called the vaccine. And the governments in the, in the United States and many other governments around the, the country are beginning to experiment with pressing an agenda of saying it's mandatory that you get it. Now, in America, we're not that used to that, and that's a little strange. This is some new territory for many of us, even though I'm going to give you some examples today which show that it's not actually that unusual for the government in the United States to mandate things. It's just this seems different to us, and there are some unique wrinkles to it. There's no, uh, no doubt about it. However, there's a lot of people that are saying, I'm going after religious or moral exemption. And so what I'm going to say in response to that is, that's perfectly reasonable and right. 
If you were to come to me and say, could you write me up a religious and moral exemption, which you don't have to do. I mean, technically, you could write up your own. But say you were to submit to me and say, Eric, what do you think about this? Well, I'm going to give you what I think about this, okay? In other words, I'm not against you pursuing a religious and moral exemption for something, but what I want is for it to be thoughtful. If you were going to get married, I would want you to put some thought into it before you did. If you were going to be baptized and you came to us at Ellerslie and said, hey, could you baptize me? There would be a process that I would walk you through to make sure that you understood what you were doing because it is a very significant public declaration. If you're going to be, go public with a declaration of the state of your soul and what you believe, it's good if you know what you believe. Okay, now there's a lot of personal things that don't demand that, but this is one that I would say has greater weight to it and I'm gonna walk you through how, as a pastor, I would look at this. If you came to me, let me sort of walk you through how I would process this through with you. So first of all, I'm gonna start with this statement. I strongly sense the body of Christ needs to be sharper and more prepared right now. And I don't just mean that you need to go off and listen to the news a little more to be sharper and more prepared. That's actually not what I mean. I, I think that's going to dull and dim you more than it's going to help you right now. I believe we have to be more grounded in how we make decisions as Christians and what our criteria are in making those decisions, especially when it comes to hills to die on. I want us to just be aware of that, that these things matter and they have gravity and I do not want to take them lightly. So the dangers of apparent loopholes. I'm gonna call this the jury duty laxness. Okay, now we are citizens of a country. Most of us in here are from America. I know we have some uh, Canadians in here. I don't know why we have a Belizean in here. But most of us in here are Americans. Some don't live in America. We have someone from Korea in here. However, we sort of understand if you live in America, there's something called jury duty. Okay, I don't know any American that gets excited when they get a summons to jury duty in the mail. In fact, I've grumbled probably more about summons to jury duty than maybe anything else, and I, I've gone through it without a lot of conviction. And then I start preparing this message, and I start to get a little convicted. Uh, because as a citizen, just like my, my family, you know, when, when one of my children grumbles about chores, you know, I could say, excuse me, but you're part of this family. You have the benefits of this family, and part of the way we work together and maintain the health of this family is by all of us pitching in. Doesn't that sound like a classic parent uh, statement? And jury duty is one of those classic illustrations of how we pitch in. We all appreciate a good judicial system that isn't just you know, on the whim of one person's opinion, but to have a jury actually is what stabilizes our American system of government, which most of us in here would say, yeah, it's a great system of government. Just don't inconvenience me with it. You follow me? So I'm gonna call this jury duty laxness. I, I for whatever reason, have a strange magnetic pull towards jury duty. Like, I think they have a pull towards me. I'm not exactly sure how it works. It's sort of like they have these certain names. They're like, ha, ha, ha. Let's stick this guy in the, you know, in the system often and always. And then when I go into the jury duty selection process, I always get picked. Okay, that is like statistically almost impossible, right? And so here's what I'm doing the entire time. I'm trying to figure out a way to not sit on the jury because I'm a busy guy and I have a lot to do and the pay that they give for jury duty isn't very good. And it's not, it doesn't warrant me giving up a week or two weeks. I've been on some federal cases. It's like, I don't have time for this. And so 
I, I feel convicted over this uh, as I'm going through this because it's the least I can do to serve a system that I support because that's the only way the system can be supported. So I'm going to call this jury duty laxness, and I'm not saying I could be the only one with that attitude. However, I have a hunch there's a few others in here that might have it too. So jury duty laxness, this is the principle of it. It's easy to seek exemption as the easier route rather than truly wrestling through the matters of conscience. Okay, now I'm indirectly poking at something there, and that is that many of us could easily pursue a religious exemption as opposed to wrestling through matters of conscience just because it's so much easier. Come on, let's just, if I just got the exemption, that would just solve the issue. Well, tell me about your beliefs. Explain to me why you feel that you need to be exempted from this. It'd be really good to be able to answer those questions. And yet many of us are sort of like in jury duty, we look for a, a way to get out. It's like, there's certain ways that you can answer questions when the lawyers ask, because I've been in this situation quite a few times, that I've recognized get me kicked out. Huh, that's fascinating. When I emphasize the fact that I'm a pastor with strong beliefs, it has a tendency to get me removed. <laughs> I can give you multiple illustrations of this too. And in looking back, I recognize, in a sense, I'm looking for an exemption, and I don't want to do the work that maybe as a citizen I should do because of the inconvenience of the commitment. And I'm convicted by that. And in a sense, I want to have a better approach the next time I get jury duty. I'm, I can almost feel it in the mail as I say that. But I, I'm bringing something up to say I see it in myself. So conscience, this is what I talked about a couple weeks ago in the, the second part. Sunadesis, it's joint knowledge. It's, you know, the word itself in the Latin is con, with science, or with knowledge, right? But it's this idea of joint knowledge, the moral sense of right and wrong, the other set of eyes to view the matter, the other perspective of the soul that doesn't seem to side with self. It's weird. You could be totally desirous in your natural man to do something, but you have this thing called conviction. This other set of eyes that says, I don't think you should do that. It's like, who are you? Hey, who, shut this guy up. Why do I have this thing called a conscience inside of me that doesn't just side with what I want? Isn't it fascinating to think that God gave us this? And when you honor that conscience, things go well with you in life. When you dishonor that conscience and disagree with that conscience, you have something that starts out as guilt. Okay, that, that's, what it's, that's what it's known as. But then if you disregard the guilt, you end up searing this ability to actually heed the other set or that other lens or that other perspective, which is very, very important to your health, toward, to your life, especially your spiritual health. So the biblical facts about the conscience, there's all sorts of things we could say about it, but it can be weak. In other words, just because you have a conscience doesn't mean it was ever trained or trained properly. In other words, you have muscle, but that doesn't mean you ever used that muscle, right? But you still have it, and that's the same with a conscience. It can be weak. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 7. It can be trained. In other words, it can be cultivated and made stronger. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 10. It can be trained incorrectly or seared is the term, 1 Timothy 4, 2. It can be ignored, 1 Timothy 1, 19. And it, in, in 1 Peter 2, 19, it is tremendously important. And I could give a lot of illustrations in Scripture of it being incredibly important. Here's one of my favorites, 1 Peter 2.19. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So when you endure grief because you stand with your conscience, you agree with what your conscience is saying, it is actually commendable to God. 
So let's first look at the weak conscience. It's a conscience without knowledge of gospel liberty. So I'm going to start building as we progress through this, this idea of the law of liberty, which comes in and through the cross of Christ. The Jew was under law, a law of commandment. And with that law of commandment, there were certain things that they could not touch, they could not look upon, they could not get near, there are certain days of the week, it paralyzes them with a desire to be fully accurate and perfect. The gospel is going to come in and supply them, not with a free pass to now live however they want, but with a different measuring system, a different way in which we appropriate the righteousness of God. And so I'm going to call that a conscience without knowledge of gospel liberty. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 8. Concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, for us, as Paul is saying, we know that that idol is not even real. It's just a bunch of wood, or it's stone. It has no power. So if something's offered to it, it doesn't change the food, right? It's still normal food that God created. However, someone else may not know that, and they actually think that that idol is real. And so as a result, when something is dedicated to it or that, that food is sacrificed to it, it actually has a spiritual attachment to it. And their conscience is saying, you shouldn't eat that. But to survive because a lot of the food was sacrificed to idols, they violate the conscience, and it actually harms them. Ironically, that food has no problem with it, but because they're going against their conscience, which may be a weak conscience, they're actually harmed by it because they're not listening to that voice, even if that voice not be fully learned. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So I'm going to also talk about the seared conscience, which is a conscience, this is different than I would have guessed, too. If you, ever, if you ask me, what is a seared conscience, I would say someone who doesn't listen to their conscience, and then eventually it just sears over, which is still true, but this is fascinating, the context for this in Scripture. A conscience that heeds law over spirit, disdaining the Christ-imparted liberty where you come to a conclusion that either this is totally fine for me to do, and that's the new law, or we cannot touch that. It's still law that is ruling the conscience, and when you allow that law to continue to rule and you reject the gospel liberty, it actually sears your conscience. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. There's a lot in this. Now, we're, when we talk about food sacrifice to idols, usually we just sort of gloss over. It's like reading genealogies in the Bible. It's like, okay, well, are we going to get to something important here? because we don't deal with the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And yet, strangely, the idea of food sacrifice to idols, of bringing something into your body that you may deem polluted, you may deem harmful, is actually not that far removed from what we're dealing with. 
And so as a result, when you recognize that our conscience needs to be shaped by Scripture, not by our own preferences, this becomes very, very important. The strong conscience, isn't it nice to know that that's a possibility? So that's a conscience built upon the foundation of Christ, his word, his love, and his truth. And this is the same scripture I read before, but in 1 Peter 2, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, a strong conscience, one that is built upon the truth, and then if you are ever asked to violate it, your answer is no, and when you suffer because of it, God says, that's right. That's actually the right way to suffer. If you suffer for doing evil, that's not fun, right? There's there's no uh, consolation in that. But if you suffer for doing that which is right in accordance with your conscience, that is commendable. Paul's conclusions. I'm going to call this conscionable uh, reasoning, which is a big word. I don't know that I like using the word conscionable. It just means a action of the conscience, okay? If you are reasoning in and through your conscience saying, okay, here's what my conscience is saying, conscience is saying, then this is what Paul is going to say in regards to food sacrifice to idols. And I just want you to listen in, and I'm going to do it two ways. I'm going to read it through the way Paul said it, and I'm going to read a New King James translation and an ESV translation, and then I have two scriptures, New King James and then ESV. And I want you to listen, And then I'm going to take the same scripture and I'm going to attempt to stick the vaccine in it instead. A little risky and it may be imperfect and you can throw it out if it doesn't help you, okay? I'm just trying to get us thinking. So 1 Corinthians 8, 8 and 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5. But food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Food will not, and then this is the ESV version of it. Food will not commend us to God, for we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. And now listen to the next scripture. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Isn't that an interesting statement? The way you receive something seems to define if something's good or evil. And if you believe it to be evil and you receive it as evil, it is evil towards you. And that's what Paul seems to be saying. But if you receive it as thanksgiving, it's like, thank you, Lord, for some good food. I believe you created this for my body. Then suddenly it becomes good to you. What? For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So here's the ESV version of that. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, I recognize that some of us in here might feel a little uncomfortable with Eric sticking the vaccine in the same context, and I'm okay with that, okay? In other words, this doesn't say the vaccine. This is talking about food sacrifice to idols, and it is different in that regard, because you can understand that God, you know, someone growing food in a garden is a little different than a pharmaceutical company going with their potions, okay? And so I get that, and I understand if you're like, that, that isn't applicable straight across the board. However, The truth in it still may be, so I still want to get it to the surface. So what if we switch out eating food sacrificed to idols for getting the vaccine? Do we learn anything? We may not, but it's just an experiment, and I like doing experiments like this. So here we are. But getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine does not commend us to God, for neither if we get the vaccine are we the better, nor if we do not get the vaccine are we the worse. Neither getting the vaccine nor not getting the vaccine commends us to God. We are no worse off if we get the vaccine and no better off if we do get the vaccine. Something about my parentheses in there is a little off. 
for every, now this is tough, you know, creation of God to medicinal help, okay? I didn't know how to do this in such a way, but so some of you are like, ah, you know, Eric, you, know, you blew it on that one. Now I can't listen to this. For every medicinal help is good. That's questionable, right? You know, I, uh, that's a tough one. So it's a tough one for me to put in here. It may not totally work. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And so here's the ESV version. For every medicinal help is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. But even at, here's what I at least want you to process. To recognize the Bible isn't an absentee on these topics of conscience. Paul is giving his reasoning over a very, very challenging issue that was dividing the church. The reason it is even brought up in 1 Corinthians is it is splitting the church in Corinth over if it is appropriate to eat food sacrificed to idols because someone in their liberty is just eating foods. That was, that was sacrificed to an idol. And this guy's like, I have liberty in Christ. What are you doing? And so you see this tension, what, exactly what we're dealing with today. Some of you already have the vaccine, but you're afraid in a conservative environment to announce that you got the vaccine, lest you might fall under the disapproving glare of the rest of the body. And then there's other churches, it's the exact opposite, where if you didn't get the vaccine, you're scared, you want to act like you got the vaccine. Just sort of get that one swagger, a vaccine swagger, you know, where you, you walk into your Starbucks, you're like, yeah, of course, of course, of course. You know, just don't ask me the question. If, you, if they ask me if I got the vaccine, I was like, yes. And then you whisper under your breath, the polio vaccine. <laughs> okay, so here's my pastoral desire. Number one, we must be consistent in our expressed convictions. I'm going to dig deeper into this. Consistency is of the utmost importance. Two, we must be thoughtful, truthful, and airtight in our reasonings. Number three, we must not contradict the very Bible we are claiming to be following. If you say you have a biblical conviction, then it cannot contradict the Bible in your biblical conviction. And number four, and I would desire us all to be tested, examined, and proven in our ideas before the church prior to taking them to the governmental level. Not a mandate. I'm not making a mandate that we have to do this. I'm saying this is what my pastoral desire would be, that we, within the church come to conclusions and honor one another in the fact that we could differ in how we land, but to show respect and honor and become stronger through it here, where you're not sloppy in your soul, and we don't just allow you to be sloppy in your soul. Let's be sharp in this. So here's my first pastoral desire. So I call it pastoral desire number one. We must be consistent. Now, if you're not uncomfortable yet in this message, it, the discomfort may begin to creep in as we go through this. However, to be honest, this may have very little to do with the vaccine and a lot more to do with just our overall Christian life. See, we live in a very sloppy version of Christianity that we have not had to be held accountable for our exact beliefs on things because there's no consequence for the fact that we believe that or a little sloppy around the edges. In this situation, there can be. And as a result, it's very, very important that we remove sloppiness. So our claims should be accurate to the entirety of our life. They must not be fudged for convenience sake or out of preference. So it might be your preference not to receive a shot. I do not like shots. If you've ever been through Ellerslie and you've heard my shots when I went into the CVS, is it CVS, is that what it's called? CVS Pharmacy. And I don't know what they did, broke off the needle in my arm. I'm not sure what happened, but it wasn't a positive experience. 
and I would prefer not to repeat that, right? So any kind of prick or shot, just there's nothing attractive to me. So my preference is, no, I don't want one of those, right? But that isn't necessarily a good basis of reasoning because there are certain times in my life where I have gotten shots, and why would I not get it now? I need to be consistent, and so at least I need to think that through. So here's an example. I cannot receive into my body a vaccine produced and or tested on fetal cell lines. That would be a violation of my conscience. Now, this is a heavy-duty statement that is being made right now. I'm sure many of you, this is possibly a key issue. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be for you. However, I want to poke at it. And I want to test it a little. Because if you're going to have that position, it has to be consistent. And if it's consistent, you're going to have to change your life. You will. Because there's a lot of other things that are produced or tested on fetal cell lines. Which means if you're going to have that as a position, you need to truly be consistent with it. Here's just a little example. If this is your genuine claim, then, you're, then it should prove out in the entirety of your life. The same fetal cell line from the kidney of an aborted fetus in 1972 that was used to produce three of the major vaccines and to test other vaccines was also used to either produce or test the following other commonly used medications. Acetaminophen, albuterol, aspirin, ibuprofen, Tylenol, Pepto-Bismol, Tums, Lipitor, Senecot, I might mispronounce some of these, they're not normal things that I take, Motrin, Maalox, Exlax, Benadryl, Sudafed, Preparation H, Claritin, Prilosec, and Zoloft. So, and there's, there's a lot more where this comes from. In other words, the moment you jump down that tunnel or that hole is the moment you have to be consistent with it. If it really is against your conscience because of this, then as a result of this, you should take a stance in every regard to that. How could you take one thing lightly that is made with fetal cell lines or from that fetal cell line and take this one seriously, unless it was really just a preference that you had and you're cover covering it over with the good old fetal cell line line, okay? And that's what I want to test. I want us to be honest in this. So WebMD uh, said this, and this is a very fascinating statement. A hospital system in Arkansas is requiring employees to confirm that they won't use common medications, such as Tylenol, Tums, and Preparation H, to receive a religious exemption for the COVID-19 vaccine. Why would they do that? Well, they're smart. They're saying, all right, so if you want to get a religious exemption and work at this hospital, then you need to be consistent. So this hospital sees it too. You need to be consistent, which means you have to sign a paper that says you will not use any of these medicines. If you do that, all right, we'll consider giving you a religious uh, exemption. I'm going to give you my opinion on what this uh, hospital in Arkansas said, I agree. It shouldn't take a hospital to declare that we as Christians should be consistent in our lives. In fact, it bothers me that it has to be a hospital to bring up the issue. Shouldn't it be, and I don't care about just the vaccine. The vaccine is one issue in many. But shouldn't it be true that our lives are consistent if we're going to boldly make a declaration to a culture of where we stand, that we're offended by something, but then we're going to violate that very statement in every other area of our life, I think they have reason to throw out what we are saying. But if we're going to be consistent, let's be consistent. One of the reasons it was very hard to defend the sanctity of marriage is that there was a higher divorce rate in the church than in the unbelievers. 
and yet we are fighting for the sanctity of marriage, and our arguments seemed a bit hollow. And I have a hunch it seems a bit hollow right now as well. So here's my second pastoral desire, pastoral desire number two. We must be thoughtful, truthful, and airtight in our conclusions. In other words, our conclusions must be firmly established on truth and not on the premise of convenience, preference, or fear. We do not make our decisions, our public declarations of what we will and will not do based on convenience, preference, or fear. That is not how a Christian functions. So I'm going to give some examples of this. If you are requesting a religious exemption because you are afraid of the effects of the vaccine, that's, that's a very reasonable one, by the way, because we don't know long-term effects. However, I'm going to say that in a situation like this, as a Christian, that's still a very difficult one to undergird and underpin as a biblical reasoning. That's not a good biblical conclusion. Even though it's reasonable, it's not a biblical conclusion. There's so many things... Christianity in its very nature is risking your life. And so as a result, we don't fear death. And technically, according to Mark 16, we can take poison into our body and come out the other side unscathed, walking through the fire. In other words, we do not fear. So having fear of effects is not a good biblical basis, even though it's a reasonable statement. Example number two. If you are requesting a religious exemption because you are unfamiliar with the long-term effects of the vaccine... That's not a good biblical conclusion. It's reasonable, but I wouldn't say that's a good biblical uh, conclusion. Example number three. If you are requesting a religious exemption because you are convinced that there is an evil plot behind it, most things in the world today probably have an evil plot behind it. You know, there's many businesses down the road that have an evil plot behind what they're doing with their funds. That when you buy, and I'm not going to use Starbucks as an illustration because they have a pretty decent chai, but we'll use some other uh, place. <laughs> in other words, if we are going to evaluate everyone's motive before we do anything in this world, we might as well leave the world right now. We're going to have a tough go at it because all of our tax dollars, you, I mean, it's going to be very hard for you to pay any taxes, by the way, which is another biblical challenge because what, what do they do with those tax dollars? 500 million is going to Planned Parenthood? So if your issue is abortion, then you're going to be strangled at every front. You can't pay your taxes. You can't get the vaccine. You can't do a lot in this culture. You need to weigh that. That may be the end conclusion, and you'll still get my support. However, you need to be consistent, and it needs to be thoughtful. Example number four. If you are requesting a religious exemption because you are concerned that by doing so, your odds of getting COVID will spike, again, reasonable, that's still not a good biblical conclusion. There's a lot of things that we knew that if we did something, our odds of dying spike. Welcome to Christianity. Just believing in Jesus, the odds of us dying spike. I mean, we are, we're a higher risk category. I don't want to tell that to an insurance company, but we're a higher risk category just believing in Jesus. There are certain things that you can do. The moment you start speaking, so you're a Christian and you start going vocal, the risk rating of you dying is now increased. In other words, we're in a higher risk category. Let's just get used to it. This is our life, Christians. We don't reason through the lens of risk. Risk is our partner in this life. We go forth knowing that our lives are in the hands of Jesus. Example number five. 
If you're requesting a religious exemption because you strongly believe that as the temple of the Holy Spirit, you should not put anything in your body that could cause damage, I'm going to say that's at least reasoning from the scriptures. And I'm going to say that's a good biblical conclusion. You notice I have some, oh, I, the dot, dot, dots are after the damage, but it goes somewhere here. And I'm going to say, however, so say that's your conclusion, because this is part of the conclusion I would say that many people have, is that I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit and I cannot take something that could be harmful into my body. Again, what if we were consistent with that? So however, it's a, conclu it's a conclusion that then must be fully consistent, i.e., no more sugar. Sugar, I think we could probably prove in a lab, is harming your immune system, is breaking your body down. I, some of you are like, oh, I don't believe that. That's a conspiracy. <laughs> now, I know I put gluten in, but for me, I'm totally fine with gluten, just so you guys know. That wouldn't need to be in my list. However, there are some of you that when you eat it, it, it literally breaks down your body. You get tired and various things, right? So hey, if you knew that it was gonna actually potentially harm your body or your function, you should not be taking it into your body if that's your reasoning. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. No more food with chemicals. No more fast food. No more medications with side effects. No more pork. No more crustaceans. And possibly no more coffee. Notice how I didn't put chai in there. <laughs> so in other words, we need to be consistent in our platform. It's not that that couldn't be a reasonable conclusion, even biblically. But if you're going to conclude that, have it seep through your entire life. Which, by the way, as I'm saying that, doesn't that make sense anyways? Whether there's a vaccine or not, that what we believe would seep through our entire life unto consistency? If this is true, then I can't do this anymore. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't look at this. I shouldn't talk like this. It should alter our behavior. Other reasons to explore. I'm just going to throw some more out on the table that we could explore. These are very real things that Christians are dealing with right now. It's not the civil government's jurisdiction to require me to inject something into my body that I do not want in my body. And I would say, biblically, that's a decent argument, okay? That there is governmental jurisdiction and God gives authority, but he also gives me authority to my body to self-govern. He gives me authority over my home to govern my home. He gives me authority over this church. And if, you know, President Biden, bless his heart, asked me to preach a very specific message on a certain topic, I could receive it as an opinion and I would be honored that he would look out of his way to, to ask me to preach a message, and I would consider it, but I am not mandated to do exactly what he says because this isn't his jurisdiction. That's good, healthy, biblical reasoning. So what if the federal government comes in and says, I want to put you to put this in your body? Whoa, that can be a potential, and that's why I'm going to say these things have potential. I'm just going to lay them out on the table. The government is overstepping its rightful God-given boundary of governance and therefore must be resisted in order to maintain liberty. Okay, that's a very common one today as well. According to our Constitution, there are certain rights that we have, and the way to maintain those rights is to defend them. And that's our prerogative as believers in this country. That does not always mean that that's what we should do as Christians, and that's where we have to make sure we're Christians first and not Americans first. However, I am a big fan of our American form of government. I really am. And I don't really want to see it go by the wayside. And I really cherish liberty, civil liberty. Today, we're not just talking about civil liberty. We're talking about spiritual liberty. Okay, and there's a difference between those. A couple more. If a citizen be innocent of any true crime, no government has the right to take away the means of that citizen's livelihood in the stewardship of its civil matters. So government 
should have no right in a biblical framework, a biblical mindset, to actually remove your way of living and supplying for your family to, to actually carry out its civil government. That is a unethical and immoral conclusion. That's, and that's what many Christians would say. This is an improper and immoral conclusion. Of course, then the opposite side would say, there's a way to avoid that. Get the vaccine. And so as a result, you have to be well-groomed to be able to walk through this. And the final reason that I'm going to stick, stick out on the table is evil will prevail when good men do nothing. And I have heard this from many different fronts. If we don't do something, then the evil will continue to encroach and we'll lose even more liberties. I understand that. However, I want you to weigh these things before the word of God and to see not just how a patriot ought to function, not just how an American ought to function, but how a Christian ought to function. That's a very, very important thing for us to conclude. To create a strong biblical case of conscience, your argument, argument must be both fully biblical and consistent in your life. And by the way, I'm not just saying that for our sake, I'm saying that for the government. The government has an evaluation system and they're a little more skilled at this than you may realize in evaluating if you have an actual conscionable issue. And they will test you on it. And they will ask very specific questions and catch you in your inconsistencies. They're very good at it, why? Because they've been dealing with this for time immemorial on the issues of conscientious objectors in the military. And so they're very skilled at it because for a nation to survive, it has to have a military system. And so as a result, they're very good at picking out who's faking it and who just doesn't want to go to war and who's afraid of war and who actually has a conscionable issue. So it's very important that we understand where we stand. Pastoral desire number three, it should be a big, big, big deal to trump Romans 13. And by the way, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about having something that actually says, I, in this situation, am going by a higher law than the commission I have to submit to my governing authorities, okay? If you are going to disobey your governing authorities, it's because you are obeying God. And you need to have a very clear understanding that you are in the right side of Scripture on that because the Bible is clear. You can't violate one part of Scripture to fulfill another. You need to fulfill the whole. So you can't prove your point through the Word of God by violating a different part of the Word of God. So this is Romans 13, and I know some of us are even, we don't like Romans 13 as we've been walking through this. You know, this, this whole COVID thing, and any church leader that brings up Romans 13, it's like, I know where they're coming from. You know, they just want us to blindly submit to this. I, I understand. I understand the concerns that go with this. However, it's the Word of God. And it's just as much the Word of God as any other part of Scripture. So it's very, very important that we don't transgress it and trample on it in the process of being good Americans. Because I understand, I, I used to teach constitutional law. I know our form of government is different than basically any other nation before us. We're a government by the people for the people. And technically our government's supposed to be working for us. And in this situation, it sure doesn't seem like they're working for us. And so as a result, we can throw out First Corinthians, sorry, Romans 13 under the banner of us being an exception to the rule. And I would like to appeal that Romans 13 is still stable in what it's saying, even if our approach to it has some nuance. Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Isn't that an amazing statement how clear that is? Sometimes when scriptures are that clear, we tend to <clears throat> skip by them a little fast. 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So if you say, no, these authorities are different. So there's one thing that Paul didn't know, and that is in America, these are not appointed by God, they're appointed by us. And I would say, that's, that's a tough argument. I, I have, I'm going to go with Paul on this, and I'm going to say, even though it seems like it's appointed by us, I'm going to say that God is still appointing. And the ex- authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Some of us are always like, yeah, well, have you ever seen our leaders? But do you want... Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do you do what is good? And you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, the conclusion, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. What an interesting statement that is. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. Which means God is going out of his way to say, government does deserve something from us. And some of us might want to limit that down to just jury duty now that Eric made his nice speech about that. And it's like, that's the limit. And yet... It is reasonable to also conclude, though I am responsible for my body, though I'm responsible for my family and my marriage, though I'm responsible for this church, that government has a voice in pieces of my life. Like I've oftentimes used the illustration, zoning. It's like I can make a decision on what's going on here, but I can't just decide to expand the building, you know, 40 feet that way and, you know, lift it up 70 feet, you know, and say, hey, it's my building, it's my church, I can do what I want, because now I'm transgressing other territories, other jurisdictions, and that's the government's territory. And so understanding where those cross, I need to recognize that there is something being asked of me, even by God. And but what if I don't agree with them? This is a tough one for us, especially as Americans. It's clear that we are to submit to governing authorities. That's, that's, that was fairly clear. I don't know if it was clear to you, but it was fairly clear to me. So it must be extra clear for us to conclude that we should disobey them. So what I'm saying in in this is that we shouldn't take it lightly if we are to disobey. I do feel that there is a biblical precedent for us to civilly disobey. That means to disobey governing authorities. I do believe that it is in Scripture, but it's clear how that works. But we need to be clear when we do it. Extra clear, in fact. Acts 4. So this is just the illustration uh, that we, many of us reference on this point. It's missing a final uh, parenthesis. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all or, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. And in another uh, part of Acts, they say it is better for us to obey God than man. It's clear that we are to live at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. So right before Romans 13, we have Romans 12, 18, which is that we are to live at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. Our desire is not to just rankle government officials. Our desire is to live at peace with our governing officials. So it must be extra clear for us to conclude that we should stir up drama in our world. The guy that is talking has stirred up drama many times. So I do believe that there is a precedent and a point in time where you have to stand and you need to speak. So I'm not at all dismissing that. I'm just saying we need to be extra clear when we're doing it. 
Conscience should be defined around submission to authority. We cannot define conscience first and foremost some other place. We have to go to submission of authority and work outward because it's clear in Scripture that we're supposed to submit. So if I'm, if I'm not going to submit, it's because what I'm being asked to do violates the Word of God and the clear command of my king. Romans 13, 5, Therefore you must be subject to governing authorities for conscience' sake. Isn't that interesting? We have to reason from this. You're violating your conscience if, or you're violating what God designed as a good conscience, if you are showing disregard to what your authorities are saying. Think about every home. What do we train our kids to do? To obey. To submit. And if our children do not submit to a direct command from us as parents, it is a violation of the home. Now, if we asked our kids to do something, and then we leave the house, and, we, and they realize if they were to do it, the house would blow up, it's reasonable that they would not do it, but they have a good reason for not obeying. Does that make sense? It's the same with us. If we are not going to obey, it's because we have a very good reason. It's because something else is going to blow up. We would have to violate our king's command to be able to obey earth's command. The Christian must be submissive as a core attribute of childhood, marriage, work, and citizenship. This is not just a part of our homes growing up or a part of our family development or church. This is citizenship too. We are a part of nation states. And as a result, we need to recognize that that doesn't disappear because we're Americans, even though I think for many of us it sort of does. The sloppiness of submission. Many modern, conservative pri many modern conservatives, it should have an S on it, prize the American form of government but only submit to it when it agrees with their preferences. I don't know, you guys can test that, and it might just be a hypothesis. But to me, it's somewhat of an observance, and it's something that I can sort of relate to, too. Our history, we just need to remember, started with a revolution. <laughs> and I've always cherished that revolution, to be honest with you. July 4th is a celebration I've always had, and I I don't want to make comment on July 4th or the, the Revolutionary War period and, and say, oh, that was wrong, because there was a tyrannical rule of government, and I'm very cherishing and appreciative of the rights that we have, the liberties that we have, and the missionary machine that was created because of it. However, we carry with us a very quick uh, determination to not submit, as, a, as opposed to the opposite, which is an inclination to submit. You see the difference between the two? We are more inclined to not submit than to submit. And if we were raising a child that was that way, we would be concerned about them. We would. If they were not submissive in the home, they're not going to be submissive in life, and they're going to have a tough time in a job. They're going to have a tough time in anything if you carry that attitude. However, it goes well with you when you submit and you show respect and you obey authorities. You have a long life. And so as a result, it's important that we don't tread over these things with disgust, but recognize that there is a process we need to walk through in our conscience that is very, very important. The heavenly mandate for submission. According to, according to Scripture, when we submit to authority as a believer in the name of Jesus, in other words, we're doing it to honor our king, we are honoring God. We submit not due to the perfection of the authorities, but due to the God-given position of the authorities. Even if a parent is harsh, their tone of voice is incorrect, and if we were to study it from the outside, it's like, yeah, that's actually not a very good parenting model. We're still going to encourage that child to submit. 
Now, there are exceptions to that. If certain things are happening in the home, we'd probably say, get out, run for your life. But it has to be an extra special circumstance. It's not the normal circumstance. Otherwise, there would be no kids on earth that would ever submit if it demanded perfection before you submitted. Could you imagine that no child of mine could submit to me until I was perfect? I'm going to have a tough time leading my home. I really will. And the same is true with government. We do not submit to government because it is perfect. We submit because of the position it holds in our life. The heavenly mandate for obedience. Your priority as a believer is to obey. However, when earthly authorities ask you to violate God's word, you must obey God over man. In so doing, you are still obeying, but you're obeying God and honoring God. So our call is to obey. That's where we start. So we're going to obey our parents unless our parents are asking us to violate our conscience. We cannot do that, right? We're going to obey our military uh, officers in war, but if they ask us to go and kill that little baby over there, we're like, sir, I, I cannot do that. And so there's certain, we need to understand why we make decisions the way we do, but we start with the premise that I'm going to obey. We start with that. We don't start with the premise, uh, with this administration, there's no way I'm going to obey anything they say. That's actually a dangerous thing for our own soul, and that's what I'm wanting to put my finger on. I'm not trying to agree with any of what's going on. I actually think it's very harmful to our American system, what is taking place. Vaccine mandates, if you asked me, I would say that's a bad idea. Bad idea. If he came to me and, and if President Biden brought me into his council and said, Eric Ludi, what do you think about vaccine mandates? I would say, you need to be very watchful there. You're going to splinter this nation right down the middle because there's some people that will not take it. And you're going to create a fight that is unnecessary. And then I might lean in and say, unless you're really wanting a fight. And so, because this is a tough one, right? But we're, that's not our evaluation point. We're not the decision makers in government. We're the responders to the government, even unjust even incorrect government. The Christian must be excellent in both these two things, submission and obedience to authority. If we are consistent in submission and obedience, then we can boldly express matters of conscience and have them reveal the love of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. If you are living in obedience and submission, then when you have a conscience issue, everyone around you knows you're living it. As opposed to, they just want to get out of hard work. You know, when someone says, I don't want to go off to war, yeah, I'm going to uh, file for as a conscientious objector. Everyone in their life knows that they're faking it and they're a lazy bum that they just don't want to do any hard work. And so as a result, we have no respect for that. The world doesn't have any respect for that. Practice issue. How does a Christian respond to mandatory military service? So in this one room, boy, we have a lot of unique mixture. You guys don't know it. I know it. A lot of unique mixture in this room. So how does a Christian respond to mandatory military service? So it's something known as conscription, the governmental mandate to bear arms for your country. I mean, you could start with the, the question, does the government even have the right to mandate someone bearing arms? Well, how's the government supposed to protect its territory and its land unless it has a military? What do you expect, you know, the king to go out all by himself and fight? All throughout history, there's been this idea of an expectation of the citizenry who get the benefit of the commonwealth of the country, that when a time of need arises, that that government can call upon its people to rise up and defend it. Okay, that's just common history right there. However, what if you are a Christian that doesn't really feel comfortable carrying one of those guns and shooting someone, which is not altogether uh, different from what some of us in here might feel? What do you do when you're being mandated to bear arms for your country? oh, this is a tension, and it's been a tension for many, many people. 
So three sorts of draft dodging. To disobey the government, you better have a really good reason. The government is not going to accept some pitiful little thing of like, well, I don't like war, or I just don't like guns, or, you know, the noise of it all sort of scares me. Well, it, join the club, okay? Not, none of us, it could kill me. I, I could end up getting a bullet. Well, yep, yeah, all of us could. You see, if you're looking for comfort, you know, you don't just get that guarantee in this life. You have all the privileges of citizenry, but when your government calls on you, are you willing to give up your life. Well, that's a tough one, especially if you don't agree with what they're fighting for. So draft dodging out of a fear of war. Okay, if you're doing that, something's wrong with your motivation to start with. Because as Christians, wherever God plants us is our mission field, and we don't fear. Number two, draft dodging due to personal inconvenience. See, I, I could imagine me very quickly landing in this category, okay? Because you know how inconvenient, if jury duty is inconvenient, imagine what a stint of service in the military would be. It's like, God, how am I supposed to lead Ellerslie, lead my family well, if I'm off in the Middle East for two years? This is very inconvenient. And so, hmm, how do I get out of this? Well, I could uh, be a conscientious objector. See, if I'm going to be a conscientious objector, I better be a conscientious objector. And that's what the third option is, conscientiously objecting due to personal conscience. If it's true, that's one thing. But if it's not, that's another. Three conscionable approaches to war involvement. And this is going to be weird because most of you are going to have a tough time swallowing the fact that we as the body of Christ can approach war three completely different ways. And yet, welcome to the body of Christ. First of all, there's the no war uh, camp. And there are people in here that know exactly what I mean by this. It's like, no matter what happens, I could never fight in a war. I could never carry a gun. There's, there's certain people that don't even feel comfortable touching a gun. It's like immoral to them to do that. And so I'm going to call that no war. Never willing to fight, believing it violates the very nature of Christ and his kingdom pattern. Two, a just war. There are some Christians that hate war, but they realize that sometimes when Hitler shows up on the scene, you need to do something about it. And if war is needed, all right. That's at least a just war. I don't like war, but we're, hey, we're willing to still have it. So that's the statement, only willing to fight and kill when it would stop a growing evil. Now, the third one is very rare to find in the church today, uh, but that's what we could call holy war. And that is zealous, even eager to kill for the glory of God. This is like, this is our mandate. We need to come to this earth and dr drive out the infidel. And that's not something you're gonna find in scripture <laughs> but it's something that can still stir in people. So when they see a war, they're eager for it. They don't care if it's just or not. They're eager just for the, the war, okay? So I'm not saying that some of these are all good and fine and dandy, but that's how the body of Christ is made up and has been throughout history. So let's look at the conscientious objector, the strange and frustrating anomaly of history. This has been very difficult for nations to handle. When some guy in his conscience says, I cannot do that, the, the government's like, what are you supposed to do with this? Because they do whatever they can to create this atmosphere of the heroes. They, they tell the tales, the minstrels sing the song, and they're supposed to inspire every young boy to grow up to say, and I want to fight for my country. And yet sometimes it doesn't work because a guy has a conviction in his soul that he cannot bear arms. Most nations throughout history have considered the refusal to stand with your country and bear arms against a hostile nation a very serious crime. 
So most conscientious objectors in history have been imprisoned or executed for not willingly going to war. There are many, 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 many men and women who have died as conscientious objectors. Just because we have the term conscientious objector doesn't mean the government recognizes it. It doesn't mean they pat it on the back. In fact, it's only been in the, in, in the 1900s that America really started creating a system for protecting that. And so even though from our founding we've always honored conscience, we didn't quite know how to deal with this. This is a, a tricky one because, hey, how can you get the benefits of this nation and then when this nation needs you, you come up with this excuse? And it was never looked upon fondly, and it still isn't. It's sort of like what we feel with the vaccine. It's like if someone is unwilling to get it, they're a problem in the society instead of a benefit. The first recorded conscientious objector, AD 295, at least this is the first recorded, I, I can't imagine this is the first one, Maximilianus, sorry if I butchered his name, if some of you are related to him and you're like, that's not how you pronounce it. He simply said that as a Christian, he could not serve in the work of war. He was executed for this. So it's a long history, okay, of people being willing to stand with their conscience and say, I cannot do that, sir, and paying a price for it. Are the reasons to object to bearing arms and violating a direct governmental command extra clear? So when it comes to this argument in history, here's what I'm going to say. I actually understand why men and women throughout history have felt that they could not bear arms in a war. I do. And I believe it is a credible biblical argument. Even if I slightly, I, I might lean more towards a just war camp, uh, I do understand. And if I was a governing agency, I would fully recognize that. However, I want to speak into that just a little. First of all, I'll go through at least a couple samples of reasoning that uh, non-resistant or conscientious objectors have uh, declared in the past. So here's a Catholic man. He wrote a letter to President Wilson. This man was imprisoned and he was sentenced to death uh, in World War I for saying he could not fight. And this is a letter he wrote to uh, President Wilson. Regardless of nationality, all men are brothers. God is our Father who art in heaven. The commandment thou shalt not kill is unconditional and inexorable. The lowly Nazarene taught us the doctrine of non-resistance and so convinced he was of the soundness of that doctrine that he sealed his belief with the death on the cross. When human law conflicts with divine law, my duty is clear. Conscience, my infallible guide, impels me to tell you that prison, death, or both are infinitely preferable to joining any branch of the army. Whew. Okay, so I'm going to say this guy believes what he believes, and he has reason to believe it. And so I'm going to show a certain regard and respect to this man, even if I would disagree with his final conclusion personally, like I would do it different. Sample number two, C. John Cadu, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, and I think this was from the perspective of the Seventh-day Adventist. Inasmuch as they, Jesus' teachings, ruled out as illicit all use of violence and injury against others, clearly implied was the illegitimacy of participation in war. The early Christians took Jesus at his word and understood his inculcations of gentleness and non-resistance in their literal sense. They closely identified their religion with peace. They strongly condemned war for the bloodshed which it involved. You see people reasoning through this, and you say, okay, I can understand. This is a true conviction, and it is based upon your biblical reasoning. And that's all I'm appealing to us to do as well, is that we are consistent, and if you believe this, you're willing to suffer for it. If you truly believe this, then there is actually no point where it makes sense to violate it. And so that's where I'm wanting us to make sure we're landing properly on this. 
When the decision is milky, which I would say this one could be called that, for example, I want to obey my authorities and I desire to serve my country. Imagine if we started with that. I want, I, Eric Ludi, want to obey my authorities and I really want to serve my country, but I just can't do it the way you were asking me to do it. Oh, that's a tension. That's a, a stranglehold that none of us want to be in because it makes it seem like we don't want to obey authorities or serve our country, but what if we really do? We're, I just can't do it that way, which is, this is military conscription right here. And I'm going to read you some samples which are very fascinating. Conscientious participators. That's different than a conscientious objector towards war. It's saying, no, I actually want to serve my country, but I can't do it that way. I can't carry a gun. So they actually creatively applied themselves to serve their country in different ways. And the government's like, huh, yeah, I guess that would be great. You're going to build roads? You're going to do this? You're going to do this? Okay, you work as a medic over here? Sure, we do need that. And so what you have is someone, instead of just trying to get out through a loophole and get out of jury duty, they're saying, actually, I recognize my responsibility as a citizen, and I don't blame you for being a little upset with me. I just, in my conscience, can't do that. But I do want to serve my country. Can I do it in a different way? Hmm. So creatively offering alternative services that don't violate conscience. So the reason I'm bringing this up is for all of us to consider. That if you and your conscience don't feel that you can take a vaccine, are you willing to be a conscientious participator and say, but how else could I serve what you're trying to accomplish? Here's some creative appeals. Wikipedia says this, many Seventh-day Adventists refuse to enter the army as combatants, but participate as medics, ambulance drivers, etc. Listen to this, this is going to shock a few of you. During World War II in Germany, many SDA conscientious objectors were sent to concentration camps or mental institutions. Some were executed. Some Seventh-day Adventists volunteered for the U.S. Army's Operation White Coat. This would be a, I should have included this in my... Uh, World War II series, Operation White Coat, participating in research to help others. Listen to what they did. The church preferred to call them conscientious participants because they were willing to risk their lives as test subjects in potentially life-threatening research. Over 2,200 Seventh-day Adventists volunteered in experiments involving various infectious agents during the 1950s through the 1970s in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Okay, that's a whole different perspective on it. Could you imagine? It's like, yeah, uh, to serve my nation, I'm willing to be researched on uh, instead of going to war. That's someone who has a deep conviction in not going to war, and they're proving it in and through that. Whether or not you think that was very wise for them to become a part of Operation White Coat uh, is a different story. The Daniel model of appeal, conscientious participation. You guys remember this story, Daniel 1? Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. It's called an appeal. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? then you would endanger my head before the king. See, the last thing we want to do in our issues of conscience is endanger someone else. We want to love someone else. And so the last thing we want to do is put this guy in a problem situation. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. 
And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. They still honored their authority, and yet they also honored their God. And it's an amazing story. Of course, many of us feel like, well, that doesn't work for everyone. And yet what you're going to see Daniel do is creatively appeal. Hey, I'm in a bind here. I can't eat those foods and I don't want to get you in trouble. Can we work together in this? And all I'm bringing up is, why not? Why do we have to make this something more difficult? Can we be creative in saying, hey, I really do desire to serve my country. If this is to protect our country, here's some creative ways we can do that. The provision of the cross, we'll call this the law of liberty. Freedom and ability to do whatever pleases and honors God without unnecessary restraint. We are set at liberty from the code of commandment and are now positioned beneath the higher law of love. So as a result, the ruling power over our life is not commandment, it's love. Which means in each decision, the question is, what is the most loving thing? That's a very different governance. And as a result, if you have fancy shoes on and it's hindering your relationship with Jojo, what is the most loving thing? Give up those shoes. But in another situation, it might be to keep the shoes on. And as a result, I cannot prescribe to you how to handle your shoes. Because the law of liberty states that in each individual situation, you have to make a decision based on love. You have to make a decision based on faith. You have to make a decision based on the word of God. You cannot make a decision based on Eric Ludi's decision. If I were to promote that, I am endangering your soul. Because you may be violating your very conscience by doing that. Unpacking the law of liberty. Romans 8, 21. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I don't know if you've ever felt the glorious liberty of the children of God, but we have it. Fact number one, the children of God are to live in a glorious liberty. 1 Corinthians. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Fact number two, the liberty is under God's control, not man's. God is the one that defines our conscience, not man. So man could say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, that's wrong for you. Oh, you should never do that. Here's what I'm doing. But you still have to be ruled by God, not by other men's conscience. 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Fact number three, the Holy Spirit brings about this liberty. Galatians 2, 4, false brethren came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So most of you don't even know that you have a liberty in Christ, and yet that's because the enemy is going out of his way to snuff it out. He does not want you to see it, and if you do have it, then he's sneaking in, spying on it, and trying to bring you back into bondage. Fact number four, the enemy is seeking to take this liberty from us. Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another, but through love serve one another. Fact number five, we are to hold this liberty as precious. Fact number six, there is a right way to use this liberty and a wrong way. 
James 1.25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is, not forget, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Fact number seven, the law of liberty must be exercised. So you can have it, but you need to walk in it. You can't just return to command. James 2.12, so speak and do so as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Fact number eight, as believers, we are no longer judged under the law of commandment, but under the law of liberty. Did you handle that liberty with love? Did you walk in love? This is what sets apart a believer, is that we do what we do in love. Fact number nine, this liberty must be stewarded as a loyal servant would steward, guard, and wisely invest a master's trust. You've been given something very precious. Are you handling it well? Remember Jojo and his shoes. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach Jojo and to spare the body of Christ? And that's why I'm saying, when I tell my position, my position is not anti-vaccine, pro-vaccine, it's pro-body of Christ. I could say it's pro-lost culture being reached for Jesus. I do not want to be a stumbling block to the degree that I can serve, to the degree that I must suffer, that others may hear Jesus, that others may know Jesus. That's a criteria that I'm reasoning through, not just personal preference. A sample case, we'll call this Mark from Washington State. It's a true story, but his name is not Mark. Mark is part of a very conservative community of Christian believers. 95% of this group is strongly opposed to both the vaccine and a governmental mandate requiring them to get the vaccine. Mark shares this same view in general. He is not a fan of the vaccine nor the current government movements that he believes steps on his personal liberties, his family's liberties, and the liberties of his church's function. However, Mark, after prayerfully considering the matter for many months and researching each of the different vaccines, ended up getting the vaccine. His reasoning, he believed that to provide for his family and to potentially be available to supply for his fellow believers was the stronger conscionable conclusion for his soul. He got the Moderna vaccine because it was not produced using the fetal cell lines and was only tested upon them. But he did this for his brothers and sisters in Christ that are currently unable to take the vaccine based on their strong position against the use of fetal cell lines. He made a decision that he is at peace with, he made a decision with, that he is at peace with in his conscience. And his fellow church members, listen to this, this is interesting, have been supportive of his decision to do this because he lives before them every day a life that is marked by strong conviction and strong love for the body of Christ. They know he's not flippant. They know he's not just doing something that would be easier for himself. Whereas his fellow church members may not be able to get the vaccine due to matters of conscience, they still have a strong bond with Mark even though he has received the vaccine. This is the law of liberty in working order in the church that we can handle our shoes differently depending on the situation and show honor and love for each other and not divide over something as ridiculous as a vaccine or food sacrifice to idols. Does that sound like what should bring down the church? No. The law of liberty gives us a movement in our soul to heed what we see in the word and what our conscience is dictating and the circumstances we are in with Jojo. And as a result, each of us may Land, slightly different, but we are in unity together in understanding that those that can't get the vaccine, we will, we will suffer with them, as, as if we are in chains with them. And if someone loses their job, what are we going to do? Not just say, hey, you brought it upon yourself, but we're going to work with them to either get a new job or, I guess, create some kind of socialistic system of supporting one another, right? How do we do this? I don't know, but I do know we're committed to one another, and God will give us wisdom. More sample cases, Corey Tenboom lying to the Gestapo. If I were to ask you just on paper, is it, you know, are you allowed to lie? No, you can't ever lie. What if you're lying, preserve lives? Oh, this is a tough one. 
It's always a tough one. Corey Tenboom is going to lie to the Gestapo. Do you have Jews here? No. Because she loves those Jews and she's caring for those Jews and she's giving up her life. I know, it's a, it's a tough issue. But for her, under the law of liberty, I mean, just think about the reasoning here. Under the law of liberty, she is saying, I have liberty to love. And love is the highest of all laws. So therefore, if by saying that the Jews are there, I'm violating love and I'm not being loving to them, instead I'm just sparing myself, then I'm not loving. So therefore, she is going to say she doesn't have Jews there. Do you understand how this can be a tension for people's souls? How about Brother Andrew illegally bringing Bibles into communist countries? Uh, Andrew, that's violating a government law. I mean, the government itself is saying you can't do that. And he's going to say, but I love my brothers. And I'm commissioned by God to bring them the truth. Therefore, even though I will respect uh, the Russian government as far as I can, as far as it depends on me, in this situation, I need to violate it by bringing the word of God across the border. Those are tough issues. How about this one? If I were to say, is it okay for you to speed? And some of you would say, of course. Then I say, okay, according to the law. You say, okay, yeah, not according to the law. According to the law, I'm not allowed to speed. However, there's something known as the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And whenever you serve the letter of the law, it's really harsh on you and there's no wiggle room. But the law of liberty brings in a spirit. And that is, say, you are, you know, your wife is pregnant and she needs to get to the hospital ASAP and you need to get there faster than the speed limit allows, guess what? Even the law of our country would acknowledge. It is better to do that which is loving to your wife in that situation for that little unborn baby and get them there even though you have to violate a natural man law. That's the law of liberty. That's how our nation was founded. This is the basis of our reasoning. Therefore, let's make sure we don't lose it in this room even if it's lost in this world. The value of testing our position. This is my final slide. Are we functioning in ignorance, political correctness, conservative correctness, fear, or real faith? There's only one option on that list I'm gonna recommend. If you're moved by ignorance, you know, just like burying your head in the sand, that's not a good platform as you move forward in any aspect of your life. Political correctness, uh, there's a whole way. There's, there, you always feel it. It's like if you're gonna be one of the cool kids uh, and things are gonna go easy for you, there's a way that you could do it. Don't let that be your motivator. Conservative correctness, there's a version of that too. And if you want to be a cool kid in the conservative community, defying the Biden administration, then there's a way that you can do that as well. And I'm going to say, you know what? Oh, fear is another one. I'm going to say, throw all these out. These are not our motivators. We're, we function in real faith. We are believers. That's what we do. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.